Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the AEW Dynamite Preview. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by the Dudley Boys of What Culture, Michael Hamlet and Michael Sidgwick, here to look ahead to tonight's episode of AEW Dynamite. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts where we not only review AEW Dynamite, but also AEW Rampage, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, pay per views. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a roundup of the week complete with a a quiz, of course, on wrestle culture. As I said, though, joined by Hamlet and Sidgwick, who look ahead to AEW Dynamite tonight and the fallout from All Out. And people have been crying out for this from you two this week, lads. So, Sidge, what did you make of AEW All Out 2021? Yeah, it was really good. Hamlet? Yeah, it was all right. Solid. Cool. So, looking ahead to... No, <laughs> oh, my days. Uh, Sidge... Uh, I, I messaged you two words on uh, Monday morning off the back of this pay-per-view as I knew you were heading off after writing a brilliant ups and downs article, which you can still read at whatculture.com. I just wrote, bloody hell. And I felt like that encapsulated my feelings about just everything, your reaction to the pay-per-view. We'll go through the matches, but just overall, obviously, oh, what a sensational show. It was just an incredible and incredibly special experience that felt like it coronated AEW as the destination for professional wrestling. It had been for quite some time, almost, one would argue, since its inception. Um, but yeah, all out, there was just a different energy, a special vibe. Unanimous, unanimous greatness objectively received as this amazing, outstanding, momentous, special, wonderful, life-affirming, incredible experience of a professional wrestling show. It will be talked about in the years and decades to come at the absolute top tier of pro wrestling experiences. Mm -hmm. If in fact, look, the card was excellent. The matches were mostly excellent. I've seen better in-ring shows, but that's not necessarily what AEW is all about. AEW is about the angles, the promos, the in-ring, but it's the package. It mm. is the package. It is the full breadth of everything that is great about the professional wrestling experience. And now we've got literal 1996 level jumps on top of that. Genuine paradigm shift potential 
on top of that. Um, just one of the best shows I've ever seen. For every reason that a great show is a great show. Yeah, I think I think Miller really hit the nail on the head with this as well. Uh, Hamford, I'd love to know your thoughts because obviously the, the discussion on Monday was genuinely, and I know it's a gimmick of mine, but was this the best pay-per-view ever? And I think there is discussion to be had there. I think the more I reflect upon it, I don't think that's the case. But I will agree with my, what Miller said on Twitter uh, just the other day, which I think is probably correct. The best ending to a pay-per-view quite possibly ever in terms of like sending the fans home, not only happy, but intrigued and excited for what comes next. Uh, Hamlet, talk through your experience of all that. Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of very similar takes to Sidgwick based on what the thing he pointed out, like there was just unanimous praise and adoration and love for a show because of the experience that it gave most of us. There may have been different levels of joys for different matches and that's always going to be the case. Um, but it was the overall experience. It's funny, I was like in mind of last year's AEW's All Out and we talked a lot about vibe and how the vibe was all wrong for All Out last year versus how it was this year and not just because of crowds and the pandemic and everything like that, but in terms of how a show played out and just how crucial vibe is and energy and all those intangibles. And this had that and that may well be the reason why as the years go by, this doesn't uh, match by match stack up against maybe some of the all-time greats. But I ha- also have the gut feeling that it will. I genuinely think within 10, 20 years, we're still going to be talking about this show as an all-time great. Um, it moves, yeah, whenever there's a show that feels like that to compare it. certainly moves me and I imagine a lot of other people to compare it to WrestleMania 17. Um, and the big comparisons I had from that, it's funny that you mentioned the ending because even as it was happening, there was this slightly icky, oh, Austin's shaking hands with Vince. Like, this is interesting, this is shocking, but that added to this kind of season finale feeling about it of why WrestleMania 17 was so great. I would be lying if I said, oh, and, and as that occurred, I knew the Attitude Era was over. Of course I didn't, but there was something to that. There was definitely something to the way that WrestleMania 17 was presented. The WC, the ex-WCW wrestlers in the stand as special guests of Shane McMahon. You couldn't shake that feeling that a golden era was coming to an end and maybe this was a toast to that. That couldn't have felt more different at all out. The ending was shocking for all the good reasons and in the sense that, well, what is going to happen next? They've just elevated to the next level. That's where it comes closer to the, the bash at the beach ending. As Cedric pointed out, the 1996 turns. Hogan turning and joining it with Hall and Nash is just this. WCW is on top of the world. It's like, well, I need to turn it Nitro tomorrow night, as indeed we need to tune into Dynamite this week and Rampage the week after and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's one thing to book a wonderful life-affirming wrestling show. It's another thing to book a wonderful life-affirming wrestling show that wants to keep wants to keep you on the hook and wants to make you keep watching. That is an added skill. It's a skill we know and always existed within AEW, but they struggle to express that on pay-per-view. And I think this was a wonderful expression of that in the one arena that they'd kind of, since probably double or nothing 2019, they'd failed to maybe master. And that was as thrilling as anything else. Yeah, that's what I was going to get onto before we run through this sort of match card, Sitch. You and I, when we were previewing it, were crying out. We were saying the big thing that hobbles these AW shows is they have 10 matches and a lot of them are, you know, fantastic matches. But then the what matches that, you know, don't have to go out there and try and steal the show, just tell a story and, and make me invest in it. They become... I, don't even, I hesitate to use this word, but indulgent. Yes. And we talked about the fact of, you said, don't give those matches 18 minutes, give them 13. And you look at, you know, Britt Baker, Chris Statlander, that went under 12 minutes, as did Moxley Kojima. Miro Kingston was th- just ran 13 minutes. And you said on the preview, your over-under was, I think, 3 minutes 30, 
for Paul White versus QT Marshall. He went three minutes, 10 minutes, and he, uh, three minutes and 10 seconds, sorry. And he did everything that we required. And that was sort of the, the case across the card. Yeah, I think the message has finally been received by the otherwise incredible gift that is Longbone Tone, Tony Khan. <laughs> Tony Khan is a man who wears many hats. He's got loads and loads of different jobs and titles and responsibilities and friends, of course, who all come into AEW or are rumoured to come into AEW. He's a very social guy from reports. He's always handing out the white claws. Just a man of completely and utterly boundless energy. He can probably watch a five or six hour wrestling show and be as amped for the main event as he is for the opener. This isn't felt by the fan base at large. I think he's finally got the last bit of the puzzle. And what's funny is that there were two, there are core problems. Matt Hardy versus every mid-card act in the company must continue. Sucks. Mm. And we'll not go on the pre-show buy-in because there's no point. No. The last, Butcher came back. Great. Yeah. Andy and Murray's very happy. The last two core problems with AEW, the man has solved, and it was already a near-perfect wrestling promotion before he solved those issues. The debuts, Jesus Christ, as he fixed that one, <laughs> between Punk, Danielson, and Cole. Three of the best pay-per-views ever, and they're within a month of each other. The Punk debut in the marketing campaign behind it, probably the best ever. I'm going to put my yeah. clock on the table. He's resolved that, and he's resolved the sag and the bloat of the pay-per-views. And if this form continues, I'm telling you, Raw's demos are in a significant issue during Monday Night Football season. Mm, absolutely. Uh, let's start at the beginning of the show because me and Sige, you know, previewed this uh, on the weekend and we were sat here and debating about what match main event and also what match would start. And we, we didn't really call this, if I remember rightly. We were talking about maybe the tag match opens, you know, maybe you just sounds bad get the cm punk thing out of the way or do you put that in a main event and you put the world title right at the beginning of the show none of us thought to suggest Miro eddie kingston and yet the moment it happened hamlet you went oh yeah that makes complete sense to open the show with these two men kicking the crap out of each other and redeeming these nuts yeah um yeah often the most perfect moments are the ones that are perfect in hindsight rather than beforehand um Ultimately, one of the first two matches could have made for perfect openers. But when we got what we got at the end of the second match, it made sense why you had the first match first, because Miro and Eddie Kingston may have struggled to follow the arrival of Minoru Suzuki. They were kind of similar matches in tone, I would say. Maybe not entirely physically, but Moxley versus Kojima and Kingston Miro had a, a similar energy about them. Hard lads trying to batter each other hardest guy wins on the night and yet they were brave enough with Miro to tell this story about Eddie Kingston's bollocks it was all there it was literally written across the chest and you kind of knew it would feed at the finish in the office I'd said to Cedric I wonder if this is going to be the night that CJ Perry makes her first appearance like oh, you've got to assume that at some point she is coming in she's been name-checked that much and I welcome it a great pairing when they're used together this is not one of them awful ex-WWE sign-ins that people bad faith actors like to criticize I thought it might be her with a low blow instead it was just Miro himself but it was off the back of an epic battle and AEW booked themselves like really elegantly as well by the way with the ref trying as hard as he possibly could to uphold rules when that's such a common and valid criticism of again like to sort of build on something Cedric said like Tony Khan's overly energetic like tastes in wrestling he just sort of forget the crucial role of the referee 
from a kayfabe point of view and to try and, and to find a way to protect the referee's integrity for the benefit of a finish that exists a to pay off all the discussion of Eddie Kingston's bollocks and b <laughs> just justify a rare AW rematch, which you would like to think we're going to get at Arthur Ashe with Eddie Kingston, like really, really inspired, full of energy, um, which the crowd could feel and thus gave back to the wrestlers. Like a really perfect opener without being that sort of Brett Owen, Kenny Hangman type of technical classic. It was a perfect opener by, by another name and couldn't have loved it more. This was a great match. This was a great, great match in so many terms have been bastardised by WWE. They've got such a knack of ruining core promotional concepts. Mm. So when you invoke these phrases, these shorthands, people think it's a bad thing. It isn't. They've just bastardised the bad things to the point where they become weapons with which to attack booking manoeuvres. Saving something for the pay-per-view, absolutely you should do that. You absolutely should save some of your best stuff for the pay-per-view. It allows for better matches. It allows for shocking swings and momentum. One of my favourite things about this match, which was such a lovely, like, worked in a proper, like, pure rhythm. Total hard bastard, who's physically superior, tries to chin fellow hard bastard, who, while not as athletically gifted, has way more spirit and guts and sense of justice and fairness about him. Miro's vertical leap drop kick in this goddamn match <laughs> was so gorgeous, so well timed in terms of when he actually did it, and you know, in the context of the match and in the context of his run, because it felt in that moment like, oh Christ, well Kingston's knackered. Look at what Miro's just done. That was a ridiculous vertical leap, and he fought back from it, mm. and it just heightened the excitement, spiked the drama. And yeah, I love that finish. It's I love as well how these are real human beings, and they are. Well, they're not, they are calling professional wrestlers, but they are presented as real human beings and such craft and attentive thought is, is put forward to do that. Bryce Remsburg and Eddie Kingston have a legitimate relationship that was explored in this match. They were kind of like, Eddie, like Bryce Remsburg was conveying like, Eddie, I know what you like, but I have to do this. Like, I'm <laughs> trying to do my job and that informed the finish. It should inform, as Hamphill points out, a rare good rematch. Just loved this. Absolutely loved it. Uh, that was followed, of course, by Satoshi Kojima versus John Moxley. A, a sort of, yeah, similar hard bastards chopping or punching or whatever, the beating the crap out of each other yet again. Um, and then obviously post-match, Sige, Minoru Suzuki. And I'm going to try and wrap this into a preview about Dynamite and what a match we've got on our, on our hands for the homecoming of Dynamite as well tonight. But quickly, the Kojima match first. I love this. It wasn't as good as the opener. I would probably go three and a half, three and three quarter stars for it. But there's a phrase, and again, it's bastardized, second match comedy. The second match has to offer something else. It has to maintain the form. It can't be completely blow away because you risk burning out even this audience, like even this audience, if you give them like three 20-minute matches off the bounce. I'm think I'm very, what does the alternate timeline look like here? But they mm. didn't do that. It was an expertly sequenced card. This was a great match to put in this slot because you got little moments of levity and humour and wit in addition to this really rugged, physical, well-worked match. Kojima doing the titty-peck dance. Phenomenal. <laughs> Kojima countering Mox's forehead bite by biting his forehead and going, oh, disgusting. Like, just really funny, really put over Moxley as this just disgusting, violent brawler. Um... 
Yes, it's class. And Minoru Suzuki getting that deafening Kazi Nina rare pop was just gorgeous, triumphant. Should we preview this now? Yeah, we'll try. I'll try and mix it in because I figured, figured that's the best way to do it. Everyone got a taste of what their chemistry and dynamic is in that post-match, which was very consistent with how they um, built their match at the new beginning um, in 2020, which feels like five years ago. It was only um, like one, almost, <laughs> just over one. They have a chemistry where they kind of hate each other, but they love the challenge. They relish the challenge and the fight that they can bring out of one another. Hate each other, love wrestling each other. It's such a simple, sublime story beat. We're going to get a tweak on that, but nothing too ambitious and pointless because you've got one of the best pro wrestling chemistries out there. Um, they are going to laugh at each other's forearms. They are going to almost nod in reverence and, oh, that one really hurt. Thank you for that. I, I love fighting. And you're one of the best ones to ever do it to me. It's going to be phenomenal. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be so loud in Cincinnati. <laughs> Moxie's going to win. I'd love it if Suzuki just was a dick to him afterwards because I'd like to see them run it back at another point in time. Um, but yeah, this post-match was wonderful. Jim Ross had to be like, no, just right in the ribs. Like, Shut up, man, it's Kazinina Rare. So hopefully he's learned his lesson so we get that moment this evening. I think we really have to enjoy uh, Moxley Suzuki on Dynamite tonight because I wonder if it might be the last night we ever get uh, pure heart, baby face, John Moxley. Um, I've compared this heel turn of his that is ongoing to Bret Hart's in that Bret Hart didn't turn heel at WrestleMania 13. He completed a heel turn at WrestleMania 13. Um, and that's what's happening with John Moxley. I was putting, I was cooing at John Moxley's entrance to this Kojima match. Uh, I put words to this effect on Twitter at the time. He used to enter through the people because he was our guy. He was a man of the people, the working class hero, the guy that was carrying the company on his back in the hardest of times. And he looked like he wanted to fight and kill every single person in that crowd on Sunday. He stared into the eyes of people with this cold fury, these Chicagoans that were clearly more excited for CM Punk, that were keeping their fingers crossed for Brian Danielson and Adam Cole at the end of the night. How, like, how dare they turn their back on him as he perceives it? And tonight is going to be different, of course, because it's in Cincinnati. But then Bret Hart always got cheered in Canada, didn't they? We get one great night tonight where Moxley will be the hero that overcomes this monster in the form of Minoru Suzuki, this absolute monster. Um, and it might be the last time for a while because I just love watching this character change occur. Moxley was dirty in the match against Kojima. He is playing this version of himself where he tries ever so hard to be this like hard grafting street fighter from last year, but he's willing to take the shortcuts and play the dirty tricks now. And I, I just think his work is so elegant. It was my favourite thing about the Kojima match. The crowd were... Generous, I think, but like, why not? It's, 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 if you want to be, and if you've got love for these wrestlers, then, then why not? I think it was a, a, a more of a basic affair elevated by a really hot crowd. And I was just completely wowed by everything Moxley's doing with this gimmick. Um, the, the Forbidden Door existing only for the dads of New Japan to come and want to batter John Moxley is something I'm a fan of as well. <laughs> so this is this only builds his resentment until the ultimate dad comes out in Hiroshi Tanahashi. The most baby face of all the dads, the sexiest of dads, can come out when Moxley is at his absolute nastiest. So it even feeds into that perfectly as well. Love this character development so, so much. And it feels like for one night tonight, we'll get 2020 world champion Moxley again. Uh, that all out, that was followed, of course, by Britt Baker versus Chris Statlander for the Women's World Championship. What did you make of this match, Hamper? 
the undisputed highlight of in uh, of Britt Baker's in-ring career as champion, I would say, including when she won the title from Hikari Shida. Um, it wasn't without a, a couple of moments of hesitation between the two, but I mean, there were real fleeting moments. Statlander was just in the mood. Uh, she knew she was going to be up against it as a babyface, as everybody against Britt Baker is going to be. So they just booked her. The agent of the match and the way she performed, she was booked to have more guts than brains. And it worked and it carried and they got just the reactions they needed for Britt Baker not being able to keep her down. Um, to that end, you got violence, which again, like plays into this very difficult role, this de- difficult tightrope Britt Baker's got to walk as this heel who's beloved. She was looking particularly cruel in her efforts to put down uh, Chris Statlander. So it worked in the context of who this character is as Britt Baker desperate to keep a title, but Britt Baker, uh, sorry, Statlander as the best sort of opposition for her currently. Uh, awesome, awesome use of the, what did Excalibur call it? The Pittsburgh sunrise, not just for how cool it was in the moment. And it was so close to the finish that Britt Baker was allowed at that point to absorb the enormous pop she was getting, but in how, it effectively wrong footed you on Adam Cole because I don't know about you, but I thought, well, there's our tease for Adam Cole for the night. Tonight's the Danielson night. There'll be another day for Adam Cole. We've had our little bit of fun with that. Like that felt closer to the CM Punk viral stuff than it did he's here tonight. So I love that as a way to throw you off the scent if you were the type to think about it like that. Um, yeah, over delivered. And like, I don't want to be critical of them by saying they over delivered our expectations. I just think they over delivered full stop. I'm usually very analytical in terms of my professional wrestling watching experience and critique. A lot of people call it pedantic. Some even call it reaching. What's odd about this perception of me, and I do, you know, I like to think that's what my strengths are as a wrestling content producer. I didn't notice any of these moments of hesitation. Like everyone was telling me afterwards, oh, like really great match, you know, very sloppy in parts. I think I was just feeling the show and the experience mm. and the atmosphere so much. Maybe I was generous. I've got a few generous takes later. I don't care. That's what this product does. That's what this kind of mood, this vibe does to you. What I loved about this match, it wasn't a subtweet of Britt Baker. My tweet of, oh, it's too many matches that should go 12, go 17, because it applies to a lot of people. But at the forefront of my mind was Baker versus Shida at double or nothing. Ultimately, they got there in the end. They got the pop. They got the wonderful finishing sequence. But the actual experience of watching that match in its entirety was kind of, I don't want to say boring, but it was almost worrying. Like, Vegas seemed to get knocked loopy. There were moments where you were like, oh, come on, like, you're really testing the limits of my suspension of disbelief, my love for the Britt Baker character, because a lot of the sequences he's doing are convoluted, very ambitious. Some of it's falling apart here. Come on, recognize your strengths. Don't alienate the audience when that audience is so invested in you and it's yet another lesson that AEW has learned heeded listened to the crowd and went right well let's just do what they want Mm. let's take feedback from our loyal audience whom we respect they did exactly that there was no level of over ambition there was no intricate math sequences for the sake of it there was just a wonderful story here told of Chris Statlander's raw explosive power versus Britt Baker's technique and cunning. Because there were certain moments where she was rolling through the power. Mm-hmm. She was setting traps for when Statlander was going to kick out, right? She's going to get the arm. There was enough of that, but they didn't take the piss and like get a little bit too indulgent mm-hmm. with it. Tight, focused, electrifying, great dynamic, wonderful cool tease. I'm exactly with Hamlet. I thought he's coming. 
not yet. This is Danielson's night, but oh, this is lovely to know that he's coming. And then he came. <laughs> and as did a lot of uh, our followers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We'll get to that in due course, but not before one of the best tag matches of all time, Michael Sidgwick. Uh, Lucha Bros versus the Young Bucks for the World Tag Team titles inside a steel cage. Where to begin on this one? I mean, I said that at the start of this podcast, All Out was the full breadth of everything great about the professional wrestling fandom experience. Momentous moments. Ridiculous thing to say. Bit of tautology there, for which I apologise. Moments, debuts, surprises, great match quality, white-hot, all-time atmosphere. Moments you never thought would be possible, were not only made possible, but made seminal. You can encapsulate all of those takes into what more could you want from a professional wrestling match in this match. Ridiculous athletic achievement. Unbelievably dramatic counter-sequences. The use of a cage as a literal springboard for Phoenix to do his physics-defying, impossible magic, exhilarating stuff. The way he bumped into that cage made it feel at long, 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 long last like a weapon. Blood, drama, heat, a perfect babyface versus heel dynamic. This isn't how it was done. Because when he saw that Lucha Bros entrance, you knew in a way, oh, they've got a chance here. In my mind, and just like the central character in Lost Highway, I like to remember things my own way. I would like to think they called an audible. The books were going to go over, but the atmosphere was so unbelievable, unanimously in support of the Lucha Brothers that they thought, well, they're not going to riot, but they are going to be in a mood. Let's just do a switch. <laughs> that's not what happened. I'd like to think that's what happened because there was a moment with the, the thumbtack sneaker spot where, and what an amazing working visual to get that mask to tear. Not only, oh my God, he's bleeding. Don't take his mask off. Like, don't do it by accident because this spot's really, really risky and dangerous. Like the anxiety, the emotion. There was a moment and it was that moment. I've got, I'm going full McGillicuddy here. I'm that amped up. <laughs> From that moment that was, the, that moment, that was moment the moment on. That was the moment <laughs> where the crowd stood up and were basically unwilling, unwilling to a person to accept that the Lucha Brothers were not winning this mm. match. They just refused. They refused. Time travel. That is time travel, atmosphere, emotion stuff. People simply could not sanction the Bucks winning. So they stood up refused to sit down for the last 10 minutes and made sure their support got them over the line. And sat there and went, yeah, go on, Canadian destroyer him off the top row. What's the worst that could happen? Christ, what an unbelievable instant five-star match for me this was. Yeah, the, the last 10 minutes, like it's, it probably is longer than I thought. I was going to say the last five minutes, but it probably was the last 10 minutes. The last 10 minutes felt like one false finish. I was like, I, you know, there was the point where the Young Bucks hit the... Uh, golden trigger or the BT trigger and you're like uh, uh, that is where we're done and then you think oh Penta and Phoenix are going to get one last gasp and then they're going to lose and it's going to sort of mirror the heartbreak we had at Double or Nothing with um, Moxley and Kingston until there was absolutely no possible way they could kick out and then it just became this extended second act like I, I don't know how they did it in terms of match construction it was yet more wizardry from the Young Bucks an all time like an all time conclusion to an all time tag title reign um, the best I've had in my lifetime. It's, I mean, that's it. Like, I, 
I'd have to think, but it already feels top two, top three. And I don't yet have the sort of contenders to go alongside with it because the match quality was just through the roof all the time with the Young Bucks. This surely, I, you know, this is not necessarily a review to appeal to those people, but this surely must have been, have been the, the run for them, paid off with this match that did away with any remaining Young Bucks critics because they've just done it all in this reign. And this was a match, as a lot of great title enders are, was kind of a celebration of that as well. You got the Young Bucks finally being beaten at their own game in terms of like incredible aerial ability and risk and danger, which they should have known better because the old babyface Young Bucks would have known that the Lucha Brothers can level up to them and the heel ones were too obnoxious to realise that. They were defeated in a steel cage because they didn't have help. And, you know, with the one exception of Brandon Cutler's amazing arm, getting that shoe in at the first time of asking. James Hunt like, proud. <laughs> he would, he would indeed. Um, James Hunt, unlike Matt Jackson, probably would have caught it because the arm would have been large enough. But they, uh, like, just everything felt like it should, like a grand payoff, not just to a match and not just to a, like a feud, but the story of the Young Bucks as AEW Tag Team Champions, the journey that they've been on i guess for the last 12 months was it last all out when they defeated ftr they've had them for a year and and what what has happened in the time in Mm. yeah like what what's happened in their lives in this time it all felt like it fed into the the drama of this match and the way things were the way things happened sequentially felt like part of that um yeah instant five stars my gut feeling says dave Meltzer goes six so look forward to a lot of rows about that i think he'll go higher than five on it definitely um, every every card, if it's going to feel epic, needs epic bits of everything. And they knew, they being AEW, knew that there were going to be epic crowd reactions. There were going to be epic emotions, epic debuts, epic twists, all that. They, they knew they were going to be there on the card with the likes of CM Punk and the surprises they had in the chamber. Uh, they needed an epic, nailed-on classic match uh, and this was it. It wasn't my favourite of the night, but it was absolutely that. And I think it's you're, like without this match, that card, like All Out 21, 2021 might not have been in that like tippy toppy tier. This one guaranteed it would be there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before we go any further, though, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stresses. They can be big life worries or just, you know, little things like your favorite wrestler not being used properly. The thing is, when we keep them bottled up, it really can start to affect us negatively. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. It is really helpful too for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy basically empowers you to be the best version of yourself. So why not give better help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and best of all, suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash whatculture today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash whatculture. That was followed, of course, by the Casino Battle Royale, and we've sat here many times and complained about the issues with this. And I think it was on show yet again. It went 22 minutes. And in my review of it with Benroy the next day, you know, I said there was some, you know, nice spots with, you know, Tay Conti and Anna Jay and obviously uh, Nyla Rose getting lots of eliminations. Jay Cargill getting a few as well. But in reality, uh, Hamflet, the, the story here is, of course, and quite rightly, and it leads to tonight, and we'll talk about her and Jamie Hayter in a second, uh, the arrival of Ruby Soho, in AEW and her last eliminating Thunder Rose to win the whole thing. Yeah, like lots of small positives here that unfortunately equal the exact same amount as the one giant negative. So I'll do the giant negative first. The presentation of this match undermines everything, literally everything good that I'm about to say. And I include even to an extent Ruby Soho's victory. Um, it is a like a literally unwatchable format in that you cannot watch one thing or another. Um, you've got the wrestlers coming in to do their Royal Rumble spot, and AEW are Kevin Dunn edge spearing all of the women, one after another, after another, after another, because the format forces it. You've got to see someone entering at the exact same time somebody does their coming to the ring fire up bit, and that happens every time, and it's frustrating five times out of five, uh, and then you get that, what, four times? It's, it's infuriating. Like, it's hard to explain, let alone watch, and it's just... It cannot be fixed. I don't think it could be solved. They've had enough goals at mastering it. We've had enough goals at like trying to figure out where this might be good. And I don't think it can be. And more's the pity because in a lot of ways, this was kind of the most successful. Um, it was so joyous watching Ruby Soho get that response, coming out to the Ruby Soho music with the AEW patch on her back. Um, I spotted Liv Morgan tweeting how happy she was to see her best friend so goddamn fulfilled in their chosen living. Um, the Thunder Rosa exchange at the end was fantastic, was absolutely tremendous, was a victory for the small wins that they've achieved in the women's division because I absolutely love the story of Thunder Rosa not being able to get back to Britt Baker when Britt Baker wouldn't be there if it wasn't for her in a match that she won. <laughs> like how amazing how amazing is the day they get back to that match and how much stock has Thunder Rosa got in that challenge that she deserves and cannot can get so so brilliant that she was the last two the fans were clearly with it they were with Ruby Soho um, but I want to give a little bit of praise I still think this division's a bit of a mess and I still think there is more work to do than AEW would like considering the strides they tried to make uh, in early 2021 but I will say this for them Um what you got with the suits and the individual entrances, brief as they were and distraction as they were to watch at home, was a lot of pops, um, a lot of wrestlers. Off the top of my head, um, Hikaru Shida, who, by the way, I felt guilty for. I felt like they were trying to give her a consolation prize by sending her out there first because she's basically ceased to exist since losing that title. And I was like, oh, great, she's she's the first one in. Um, Hikaru Shida got an enormous response. Uh, Anna Jay did. Uh, Kira Hogan got a great reaction. Uh, Thunder Rosa, of course. Riho, huge back. 
for Riho. People love that music. Big Swole got a great reaction, a reminder that she was once a star, somebody else that was helped create Britt Baker in the engine room of this division. Um, Red Velvet looked awesome when she hit that spear. It's one of, like, it's one of the best spears in wrestling. It's better than Edge's. Um, she just like cut through with it. So there was these, at Layla Hirsch's fire-up moment, again, what we could see of it and the response that that got. Reactions are happening. Emotional like relationships are finally being formed with these characters. But what that says to me is not that AEW have done a brilliant job. It's that the fans are desperate for these women to get more opportunities. So there are there are like slivers of posit- positivity to be found in a presentation that, like, yeah, objectively still doesn't work. Yeah, this match just proved objectively that no iteration of this format can possibly work. This was positioned to, I don't want to say die, but they wouldn't have been that heartbroken if fans took a bit of a breather during this one and saved all their energy for the main event and the matches that were heavily promoted. That didn't happen. This crowd were mostly really up for this. But, and again, it goes back, I think Tony Khan is the only human alive with the energy and ability to focus on different things. Fulham, Jaguars, (laughs) who can literally go, right, okay, well, I've got this incredibly sharp mind that I can, right, that's a great sequence happening like in my peripheral. I can also pay full attention to the entrances. Like I think he's the only human being alive who can watch this as a cohesive, focused experience because of what a genius the man is. I can't. Certainly, I don't think anybody else can either. I have to echo literally everything Hamlet says, mindful of time, so I won't elaborate too much further, but run back Ruby Soho versus Thunder Rosa at some point. That exchange elevated this to the gentleman's three. It was fabulously worked. They extracted every last drip of the suspense that you can do on the apron. Correct result. Tidy little bits of booking. They never not position Nyla Rose along the way as a threat. Yeah. She's either the first challenger to a title run. She's a former champion. She makes it to the finals of eliminated tournaments. She makes it to the last two or three of the battle royales. Mm-hmm. They've done a low-key, very consistent job with uh, with Nyla Rose. Uh, and quickly, obviously, Ruby Soho facing Jamie Hayter tonight. The perfect way to you know remind everyone that how much of a threat she's going to be to Britt Baker. I hope this bangs. I really, really hope this bangs. At this point, it's not indicative of a proper fully fledged, actively well thought out women's division. But I would just like to see Ruby Soho get the moment of a great match, the critical acclaim that comes with working a great match because she goddamn deserves it on the back of this reaction and her ability to self-promote as an independent contract there because she wasn't the biggest free agent that WWE let go this year, but she goddamn feels like it now. Mm. Uh, Chris Jericho, MJF. Uh, came next. Of course, if Jericho loses, uh, he'd have to retire from England competition, something that we were reminded of by MJF's entrance. Uh, I think you and I heaped a lot of praise on this in the office and we've rewatched it yet again. Uh, only one issue with this, but I'll get to it in due course. And it's it's me being a performative fan of MJF anyway. Indeed. That entrance, this is why MJF is literally better than you and he knows it. Everyone <laughs> everyone pitched, oh, he has to come out of cult of personality for the bait and switch. Whether he had this idea before that take or he responded to that take and thought, no, I'm better than you. I'm going to do a better version. One that doesn't cheapen the moment of CM Punk's um, great introduction, but does in fact get the best reaction possible ahead of this. Great, great entrance. Like the font the specific use of pyro, the music, uh, it was so accurate. 
It was so perfect. The bloody robe. The bloody, <laughs> and it played off. It played off. And this is the level of thought that these two men have put into this year-long saga. It played off Chris Jericho finally allowing himself the indulgence of a bit of nostalgia, which, as I've said many times, he hates. He loves to be the master of reinvention. The one time he gives in and does Dynamite as Jericho or Chicago as Jericho, that one little line establishes a precedent for this to be taken seriously. As our Chris Jericho, it's his last match. Why not play the greatest hits one last time? No, just MJF being a dick. Huge years, huge years. Mm-hmm. The opposite of a huge pop. I thought this match was excellent. Mm. I thought they went so hard. They went as hard as the amount of thought they've put into the creative throughout. And I'm telling you now, there are different kinds of pro wrestling selling. There are different philosophies in which to do it. You can fire up. You can fire up in the face of getting dropped on your neck if the adrenaline and the spirit is so much. And then you can crumple and delay. There are moments where Nick Jackson and Ray Phoenix can just do these blistering sequences where they find the narrowest of distances to find a counter. And then they can crumple in the end and just nurse their heads after they kip up. In terms of old-fashioned, my body part knacks <laughs> and I'm struggling to apply every single move going forward following a really crushing blow to a body part. This is one of the best-selling performances I've seen in North America in it's years. Wales! MJF. And it wasn't that hammy. And it no. wasn't histrionic and he wasn't really taking it too far the man just looked like he was in agony that apron spot was how realistically apron spot should have been sold since they got introduced um some of the moves here and they were all threaded together with that back injury to tell the story magnificently went so hard the code breaker i thought christ have they Watch that. It looked so bruising on Chris Jericho's face. The dusty finish was a dusty finish. I'm going to be generous. I've got a very generous take. This is the one I was talking about earlier. Very quickly, we are very uh, short on time here. If you remember, Paul Turner at AEW Revolution 2020, Cody Rhodes motioned to take off the wave belt. Paul Turner was like, you can't do that. It's a foreign object. Then Cody gave him a look as if to say, come on, it's MGF. Everyone thinks he's a tosser. And Paul Turner allowed it in that moment. Who came out and arranged a dusty finish? Paul Turner, yeah. Paul Turner. Yeah, I, I, was, gonna, I was gonna say my, my performative take on all this, which is, you know, I can appreciate this sensational. Yeah, I'm gonna use that word a few times today. The, the brilliant work these guys did is right. Well, either the referee's decision finally is, is or it isn't. So either MJF should be world champion, right? Because John Moxley used an illegal move, or Chris Jericho should never wrestle again. But that's me being. You know, it, it's not, it's genuinely the correct take. But it is also, I would like the fact that they didn't just have Paul Turner walk out from the back and go, no, we've been watching it on the monitors back there and that's a load of bollocks. He had his foot on the ropes. He was out yes, there. Yes. There was a justification for it. You had the, the, the Wardlow and the Jake Hager stuff. They, you know, went off to the back. And that's why he's still there and he can catch that. And I think it was, was it Aubrey who's refereeing? I, I think it was. That's how he can aid her in. in... It was Aubrey because MGF shoved her. Yes. Just like Chris Jericho shoved her at full gear 2019. This is why people love this company. Yes. They remember things. They planned things. Is there more? Well, there's more Paul Turner headcanon slash amazing detail if you want it, because Paul Turner might be feeling a little bit under pressure to uphold rules because he allowed the FTR Proud and Powerful match to go on despite the turnbuckle pad being taken off for uh, FTR to try and do that awful thing to PMP. And then he sees Bryce Renberg like 
at the start of the night, holding up the rules as best he can. And he thinks, I need to be a better referee. I shouldn't have let that go on Wednesday. And I'm not going to let this injustice fly tonight. So, you know, if you want to build a little bit more story, AW will provide you with the seeds of, of the refs. <laughs> so, the law of Paul Turner. Um, I didn't like this very much, if I'm honest. I, like this for me was the worst thing that wasn't the three minute filler that existed to serve that purpose. Um, and my problems with this match weren't, weren't the work. Um, MJF was great on the cell. Another, another performance from MJF that was really, really great, but I'm actually going to be a little bit critical of AW's usage of him. We are seeing such incredible improvement on MJF. And I don't mean that sound patronizing. What I mean is because he's still so young, like, the level of class he shows in his performance is well beyond his years. Um, but I don't feel like he gets enough reps with which to improve even further, if that makes sense. He is as good as he is, and yet he hardly ever wrestles. Like, how much more could we get from him if he was wrestling, like, once every three or four weeks instead mm-hmm. of once every yes. two months? For You know what I mean? Like, uh, as good as he is, like, I think he could be even better. And they are accidentally putting... A slight thumb on that at 25. And I like I so I want more because when I see the progression in the level of MJF from big pay-per-view match to big pay-per-view match, all I think is we're not in the pandemic anymore. I know you don't have house shows. Give me a little bit more of him because like as great as he is, how unbelievable could he be? Because he is a different breed of cat in AEW. That Asai Moonsault was a flex in half to do against Chris Jericho. But look what he's got when he just needs to do it when narratively it makes sense. And apply, you know, add that to the selling that we got and add that to what we already know that MGS been able to do when he was still honing his in-ring. Like when he was just this incredible heel off the Indies or he was just this total popper on being the elite, you know. Um, what he offers in these big matches, maybe it's one of them things where if I got a little bit more, or suddenly it wouldn't feel as special. I don't know. But my gut feeling is we're maybe not getting enough of MJF. And I think the reps would only somehow sharpen even more what appears like this incredibly sharp skill set and he was the lone highlight of this match to be honest was just watching him work i think and i thought this in the dynamite match um they never found i'll say this right a lot of this to me is based on how invested you are in this story and me and cedric have sort of differed in our own investments in this story i think this whole thing peaked with ladina debonair and it never got better genuinely like blood and guts was a great match until it very, very much wasn't for me. And it wasn't just a cardboard box finish. I thought there were significant problems by the end. Uh, yes, MJF had this 3-0 record, but the inner circle have taken a piss out of the pinnacle. And that extends to Jericho and MJF as well. The pinnacle don't feel relevant. And I kind of put a lot of blame on Chris Jericho for that and how the steps in which they've taken within this feud. Subsequently to all that, that's not just criticism for criticism's sake. I don't feel like this felt like this end of a blood feud. This didn't have the passion of the Cody match. This didn't have the, like, a WWE bastardized word, didn't have the grit of the Moxley match. You know, if you're looking at these big MJF singles payoffs, like, I think this and the Dynamite match were a long way short in how you were supposed to feel about this end of the world clash. And, like, I never really got there, apart from, and again, this is why I'll defend the Dusty Finish, how effective that last minute and a half was. The Dusty Finish is there to be criticised because it is this term that is used to berate Dusty for going back to this well once too often in the NWA and in WCW. But ultimately, listen to that crowd. The hottest they were was in that last overtime stretch, whatever you want to call it. So when something's effective, I think there's no reason to be so critical of it. And it gives MJF a platform to cut a scathing promo tonight. 
Indeed. The last two minutes of MGF versus Chris Jericho were as loud as anything on this mm. show. Mm. What, what does that say? Be patient, Hamlet. It's fine. Uh, Hamlet, I'm not sure if you've seen, it's been quite quiet. I'm not sure if anyone's noticed this, but there was a callback to one, two, three kid Bret Hart in CM <laughs> versus Darby Allen. Everyone's been talking about it justifiably. I've watched it time and time and time again, just like everyone else. And uh, I know you absolutely adored this match. Seven and a half years is nothing, is it? Oh, Christ. Um, and you know what? It is something. And CM Punk told us exactly how much it is over the course of this match. This match that I've now watched four times since Sunday when I'd sometimes rather not watch most NXT and WWE matches once, let alone like times after times after times. This was such a beautiful, life-affirming presentation of when pro wrestling is real. And what I mean by that is that you knew for the longest time the art of this job was real to CM Punk. And that's why it hurt so much to, to, to him personally to feel like it was being ripped away from him and taken away from him. And that's why he spoke so eloquently on the mental health ramifications of what was happening to his life in WWE. You know, wrestlers' bodies break down and CM Punk will have had a certain understanding of that. But the way in which his mind was cooked and frazzled by what was happening to him was why he needed to walk away because he needed to find this wrestler brain again. Um, myself and Sidgwick from different rooms, uh, as we had to in the What Calls Rosses on the night, um, both were obviously went wild for the first um, one, two, three kid Bret Hart callback. But, and I don't mind admitting this, I didn't see the others that were later shown to me by cool video editors on Twitter because there were several. It wasn't just a nice nod to the best not my words, well, yes, my words, but CM Punk's words too. It wasn't just his nod to the best. It uh, it was a nod to one of the best matches because, of course, that match made so much sense. CM Punk wore a Bret Hart shirt on Rampage, so he was telling us it was going to happen. He needed to know if he could still go, and it wasn't just if he could still go as a wrestler, if it was he could still go against the youth of today because that's the whole point of why CM Punk's here. This match was a microcosm of everything that CM Punk is going to do for the duration of his AEW career, and that's why it was so special. Um, work. Headlocks, NXT wrestlers, performance center trainees, work hammerlocks, work holds. Watch this match over and over and over again to see them worked because there was not a single second wasted. I'm amazed, not just that CM Punk put in the shift he did, but after seven years, and we hear all about it, Christ, like I can barely run a mile half the time, let alone work a wrestling match. We hear about wrestler cardio, like amazed that CM Punk wasn't blown up after the first two or three minutes because that wrestler cardio is defined by those headlock sequences, those takeover sequences, those early flourishes. That's when you see if a guy is gassed or blown up or can't do this anymore. CM Punk can do this because that was as energetic as anything else for the duration of this match. It wasn't running the ropes or when they heated up. And as if to celebrate that, you have this really luxuriously worked, like I said to Cedric back in the office, this was the basics done at its most beautiful. You had that for about 14 minutes. He wasn't knackered and he was just had enough in the tank to pull off that four or five move sequence at the end, which was this just this delicious time capsule where you got CM Punk referencing Eddie Guerrero with the sit up and the laugh down the lens as he did in the sit down with Jim Ross. Uh, what I took from the time was the Undertaker sit up from the match at WrestleMania 29. Take what you want from it. CM Punk will give you it all. But then Darby Allen was just as hot, ready to crucifix pin him for it. Then CM Punk needed to be have the measure of that. And then, of course, the go to sleep shows that he still got that kill shot in his arsenal as well. I just thought this was absolutely beautiful. And 
CM Punk didn't need to give me five stars. He needed to give me the most gorgeous version of a three and a half because one day I know now I'm going to see four and then I'm going to see five because that's what a guy coming back after seven years should do. He shouldn't have it all there for night one. He should have it this time next year is when we might get a CM Punk's best AEW match. This wasn't just hollow, I love Bret Hart, Bret Hart callbacks. In terms of his work, and I think this is why it resonated so much with Hamlet, not to put words in his mouth, is that it felt like a continuation of Bret Hart, his ethos, his way of building a match, his sense of a struggle, this the tiny minutiae of the little things that you do to immerse people in the story of a professional wrestling match. And it's not... I'm trying to think of the best way to articulate this. Storytelling in pro wrestling is so often confused, and not confused with, because I do this, and I'm never confused. <laughs> but storytelling in pro wrestling can be a lot of different things. It can be the glorious subtext of Kenny Omega and the things that he does borrow from Kota Ibushi, but won't borrow from Hangman Page to plant the seeds of what their rivalries can be. It's not the endless anthology of what Okada and Tanahashi did over their matches. Sometimes it is as gloriously simple to borrow the take from Michael Hamflit as CM Punk knowing that he was in a hammerlock, like Nash's head, mm. the back of his head against Darby Allen's face to then get him in a snapper. Like there's a guy, Twitter, uh, Shane. It's the wrestle white guy, isn't he? Yeah. He had the exact same take on that of just someone gnashing someone's head against somebody else's to try and get them to stop doing them, stop doing something to them, is incredibly effective resonant pro wrestling to those who pay attention. That was my favourite spot of the entire match. It happened within a minute, and that's when I knew, God damn, this guy's back. I genuinely hate the tights. We could do an entire podcast on it. <laughs> <laughs> what I hated about the tights, it genuinely was, the magic of this, for this night, and it will mutate it will get different sometimes some weeks might even be flat the magic of tonight was of all out night mm. was we are going to see cm punk after seven years and i didn't see cm punk after seven years i saw cm punk in weird gear and there's a key distinct difference i was worked into the match with that goddamn head gnashing it was glorious but then i saw him in tights and i thought it's not that it's not cm punk that i remember he didn't suit them Mm. I don't think he suited them at all. Well, I think that poll on his Twitter says all you need to know about it. Yeah, it's like the kick pads with the long tights look for him just didn't work at all. Um, I'd rather the ROH shorts. I would like the ROH shorts because of the the Rampage promo. I mm. left wrestling and I know he's wearing the trunks, but I think it's most associated with the Joe matches Yeah, with the shorts. I'd prefer what... It's like you could argue, oh, well, he's not a nostalgia act. And it's like, well, he kind of is. <laughs> like, yeah, he kind of is. Um, so that kind of actively, like, oh, deflated me a little bit. But my God, some of the sequences at the end were perfect. The timing on the setup was so great because he, with that massive crap eating grin, seemed to suggest. I'm way more back than you ever thought possible, than even I thought possible, because it's all about when to do things, not what you do, when to do it. That was a huge Bret Hart thing. When to do it is a Tanahashi, is a Bret Hart thing. And now it's a CM Punk thing. Just wonderful. So much more effective. So much of a bigger pop than actually killing the guy's finish by kicking out of it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
we are pushed for time, so I will uh, rapidly move on. We'll talk more about CM Punk as we conclude here in terms of what's next for, for Kenny Omega. Very quickly, Sige, Paul White, QT Marshall, everything you needed from it. Yes, and that was for it to act as a buffer. Anything you want to say about this pamphlet? No, I honestly can't complain. I don't want to see much more Paul White, though. I honestly can't see any more Paul White, but that's good because I didn't see much of him yet. Let's use this as a quick moment before we, you know, get to the big finish to talk uh, quickly about Malachi Black, Dustin Rhodes tonight. Is tonight the night that Dustin Rhodes gets revenge on Malachi Black, Sid? No. No, I thought not. <laughs> I don't think the, the coins thing. It looked probably more moving if he does the coins thing. Maybe it's just talking metaphors. Malachi Black does like to do that. The coins thing on Dustin's eyes because he's way closer to death than Lee Johnson. It might <laughs> have a more emotionally. You did you miss this on Rampage? He said when he was yeah, doing, sorry, I don't know. On um, when he was cutting a promo against Lee Johnson on Dynamite, he said that he's going to lay him out and over his closed eyes, he's going to place two coins so that when Lee Johnson goes to Hades, he can pay the fee. The river sticks. Was that the? He was on about on the paper. He was on about the boatman or something. Yes, that was yeah. that. That's what all that was about. Right, that makes sense now. Coins on Dustin's eyes, who's significantly closer to death than Lee Johnson. <laughs> the most emotionally resonant image, and can rest on that image before Cody's return. I don't know his schedule. He tweeted something about whether he's about to enter the bubble for the Goldberg show or is leaving the bubble. Who the hell knows? Storyline wise, it makes all the sense in the world. This is almost followed beat for beat the Brody Lee storyline to Dustin Rhodes doing the challenge and all the rest of it. I would like them to mirror it perfectly until the last three seconds of the rematch and have Malachi Blackwin mm. just to really get over And maybe the hair. Yeah, maybe don't do like <laughs> Cody, you look you're a piece yeah. with that blonde hair. Just keep it, just keep it, just keep it. As for this match, Dustin Rhodes is not going to win. He is, however, going to wrestle like this inexplicably great styles clash opposite Malachi Black, where he just refuses to die. But Malachi Black's a killer who refuses to not kill. Mm. Like it's going to be classed like a real different styles clash. Hamphlet, I'll get more of your thoughts on this on the review tomorrow because we have to conclude and talk about the main event of All Out and the fallout from that as well. Uh, what all, all the things that happened subsequent to that. Kenny Omega versus Christian Cage, a match where we sort of knew the result, but we couldn't have anticipated what came afterwards and certainly the way it was presented, Hamlet. Yeah. Um, I like this. I don't like... Kenny Omega and Christian Cage are the type of wrestlers where it's impossible for them to have a bad match. But typically when people say that, it means they're about to be slightly critical of it. And I think that's me here. Um, it didn't reach the level of the uh, Rampage Impact title match, which I think is... Like, I can say that that's a bit of a surprise because I think the idea was, and it was a genius booking movie theory, was that you show everybody, look what these are going to do. And they're going to do it even better because it's for Albert. It's for the one that really means something. You know, that was for the, the, the toy to end the belt collector thing. This is for the one that matters. It's the main event of the pay-per-view and stuff. And I don't know if... Uh, I don't want to be, like, overly generous and say, like... Well, the cage match was the epic match. The punk was the epic feeling. And there was nothing left for these two because the great main events are supposed to be able to harness all of that. You know, like Rock and Steve Austin weren't worried about everything that they'd had to follow at WrestleMania 17. To go back to that comparison. Um, so this was very good. Like, it was better than just good wrestling or just well worked. It was a lot better than that. Um, but I definitely felt like they were they were chasing a high that, that, that they couldn't really find. Um, the top rope warming danger was a great way to finish. 
And I do love this continued detail that we've picked up on. And by the way, I haven't seen or heard or read this anywhere else. So I think we're well across this before anybody else. Kenny Omega is losing faith in the one-winged angel. And we keep seeing it. Danny Martin, he picked this just to make sure that I'm uh, in the lead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, he is losing faith in this finisher right as we approach a day when Hangman Page most likely is going to be the one to kick out of it. Inspired, absolutely brilliant. So, like a great finish, but not just for being a great finish's sake. Um, I don't care about the botch because it's, if anything, it added a bit of uniqueness to the match. It's quite interesting to see Kenny Omega flub something and then have to cope with it, watch him be rattled for a second and then lock back in. Um, I just think that they were doing all the stuff that they do very, very well, and it just maybe wasn't quite their night in reaching its potential. Good though, I thought this was really good. Really, really, really good. I thought the Rampage match was great. Mm. Christian Cage is one of the best practitioners of what, before Dynamite made it feel so thrillingly like an actual art form, Christian Cage is one of the best TV match wrestlers of all time. Like, you can go back and watch the William Regal match. You can go back and watch, like, so many of those ECW matches. When Christian Cage first signed, and the feeling was a little bit, I thought, why don't I go back and watch some of his late period work to see, and to get excited, Mm -hmm. because they didn't do enough to make me excited on his behalf, so I did the work on their part there. He had a match with Daniel Bryan on SmackDown in 2013, it was just as good as the Rampage match against Kenny Omega, it was unbelievable in terms of the compact time frame, how you can build, 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 build. It's a better TV wrestler than a pay-per-view wrestler. I think we've got evidence of that here. It's not a bad thing. Mm. Like TV wrestling absolutely rules and it's a more lucrative thing these days. What I loved about this match, it didn't have the same sense of constantly escalating, 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 building excitement that you'd expect from the Christian Cage TV match. But just the Tanahashi-esque, masterful spaces between moves, everything they did on the apron, the fact that they were so desperate to counter it, made it feel like when something's going to get executed here, it feels so much more powerful than the eventual impact of so much of what happens in every other match you've ever seen. They did so good a job of generating that drama and drama and drama to the point that when the big bombs started happening, maybe it just couldn't reach Mm. the, the, the level of investment you had in the teases of these moves being delivered. There were loads of little beautiful moments sprinkled throughout at the speed at the back. Mm -hmm. Maybe there was a bit of an agency problem because MGF had already done such a tremendous job of being unable to do things with his back that when Kenny Omega did it, we'd already been exhausted on that mm, beat. That's fair. Who the hell knows? There was something that didn't click into ultimate classic gear. It was still a very good to great match with some wonderful moments in it, but the pay-per-view still nonetheless went off on a high. Yeah, let's talk about what came afterwards here, Hamflet. Uh, you get Kenny Omega... You know, cutting a promo, beating beating him down, beat Jurassic, but you know, beat, beating everyone down basically, and uh, standing there with his with the rest of the elite and saying, you know, anyone who could actually challenge him for this title is either, you know, not here, uh, too tired or dead. <laughs> um, uh, and then you get the blackout, and you get Adam Cole coming out and, and confronting them, and then super kicking Jungle Boy and story time with Adam Cole, and of course he's going to be there with his best friends and I the smooch. The way, I love the way he said that. He's yeah. ready for story time with Adam Cole, baby. Can <laughs> <laughs> even tuck me in? And then, uh, of course, Kenny <laughs> to, to wrap up and say his catchphrase. And then we get Ryan Danielson. I've been training myself to not say his, his old name. Uh, and all that came there. I'll get your thoughts on that in a second, Sige. Uh, Hamlet, 
What did you think of this jaw-dropping ending and, and what's next for Kenny Omega, including these gentlemen and, of course, CM Punk? I mean, yeah, amazing. You know, um, the as Cedric pointed out, you've addressed the, the debut problem in the most spectacular manner imaginable with these last three, if you kind of like fold CM Punk into that as well. Um, a choice that maybe initially, based on a few reports that were kicking around a few weeks ago about when they were going to bring Brian in because of some Arthur Ashe issues around COVID maybe, a choice that maybe wasn't the first one, but has ultimately worked out as the best one because it is sometimes just special to give and give and give and give. And this wrestling show had already given so much that when you don't think you can get any more, you get it. And I think it was really astute of AEW, Tony Khan, whoever made that call to acknowledge that feeling that just because you feel like you've had the world within the confines of a wrestling show, you can always have a little bit more. That is to say that, let's say if that, let's say that if Daniel Bryan debuts, somebody else could come out and that could still be just as hot. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, that's how wrestling functions sometimes. And that's what they got to luxuriate in for the night. Um, and it was just, it was all so earned. You've got this already amazing um, arrival in Adam Cole. Like he's a cool addition to the roster, but he's infinitely better as a heel join up with the elite, not just because narratively it's probably where he belongs. And it's something that rewards fans that were invested in him pre NXT and invested in being the elite and all the DNA of this company. But because if you look at the landscape of AEW, they kind of needed a top heel anyway. So you brought somebody in that isn't just for the pop. That isn't just for this amazing thumbnail quality moment. It's because narratively he's going to contribute really effectively to the ebb and flow of dynamite as the weeks go on. He's a dream match factory with, about 20 different baby faces. And I mean, Sidgwick sort of articulated this better than me, but like the amount of matches that spawned from that closing sequence mirrors that original point you made about the, the stable wars and the first dynamite. Like here's this sort of ground zero of a moment where all of a sudden a billion new combinations are spawning and Adam Cole on the heel side of that makes so much more sense than it does as a baby face. And this is coming from the guys that were clamoring for him to be a baby face all year on the one show. Now I wouldn't dream of having it any other way. And then you get Brian as a nice savior on the night. And again, context is like everything with uh, a Brian Danielson debut, no matter what he becomes as a wrestler in AEW as the years progress, what he was on night one was perfect the nice guy coming to do the right thing. That's the perfect transition from Daniel Bryan to Brian Danielson because Brian Danielson is going to be quite a nasty guy. It was happening in the midst of the brawl and it's going to happen in some of his matches. As somebody has put online, if you listen to, you couldn't really make it out in the theme, but they've piped in the, you're going to get your fucking head kicked in, in uh, his new theme tune because that's what's going to happen to a lot of people. Um, but this was the transition. He comes out, he smiles. He almost does a smile and wave. And then the switch flicks and he becomes Brian Danielson, the American dragon. So that it was impeccable. It was impeccable. And it was rewarded as such with the noise in the arena, the feelings that we all felt, the timelines, the Reddit threads, everything like that. Um, it was a moment, capital M. It was Hogan dropping the leg in 96. It was the heart Austin double tip. Pick your favorite, pick anyone you want. It was one of them. And those are gold dust, platinum dust. That sounds like, what Vince Russo would want it's called gold dust but platinum dust in pro wrestling mm -hmm. you know when they're happening if you've lived through them before and they won't come around like generational moment at the end of that pay-per-view honestly like I don't think I can overstate that running very quickly out of time basically Adam Cole looked like a superstar there was a boom literally to his voice when he came out and spoke he looked like a superstar megastar and he will be a megastar babyface within 12 months so watch out for that my favourite 
wrestler in WWE history, not named Bret Hart, one of my favorite wrestlers in general ever. My Mount Rushmore guy appeared and debuted in my favorite ever pro wrestling promotion. I can't articulate it any further than that. And I will not be able to <laughs> articulate anything that you didn't feel. I will not be able to articulate what you felt because you felt it. Everyone listening, so I'll do that. What I will say instead is Brian Danielson versus Nick Jackson. Brian Danielson and CM Punk versus the Young Bucks. Adam Cole versus Jungle Boy. Like, there's millions. Mm. There's millions of matches. What next for CM Punk? In that promo, he told you. Uh, what next for Kenny Omega? Yeah, In yeah. that promo, he told you. He said, they're either already, they're either not here, Brian, he's here now. They're either too tired, CM Punk, he's just worked a match about a half an hour ago, or they're already dead, Adam Cole. So we know it's not Adam Cole because he's aligned with them, so it's either going to be Punk or Brian. Then there's Hangman Page coming. My current favourite... Hangman Page is still going to get booked to be the champion. And he is, but you're still allowed to be anxious about it, is some kind of permutation of Jurassic Express plus goddammit Punk and Danielson and (laughs) Hangman versus the Super Elite. How do we get Hangman Page in a multi-man, maybe even Blood and Guts, to get Hangman Page on track for that title at full gear? Well, who out of Jurassic Express is it really funny when Kenny Omega beats up and half kills Marco's done I'm sorry Marco's done <laughs> we're all going to get hit in the head with a chair by Kenny Omega and oh my god Marco's done has got a concussion and who's going to come out from Jurassic Express no one is going to be hanging on page can I go one better than that Kenny Omega in a desperate attempt to flex that he's still a man like bigs up this like I'm not going to be made a fool of on a pay-per-view I'm going to issue a world title challenge next week on Dynamite Against Marco Stunt, and yes. then he puts him on a. He's stretched like he's stretched out, and it, that's like he is gone for it. Like he's gone for ages because he just injures him with an inch of his life in the title match. He's like he's an think- angel for Marco Bloody Stunt. Someone tried to yeah. me on Sunday, and it really pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just such an exciting time to be a wrestling fan, and uh, yes, uh, well, uh, the best news of all. Forget everything. Forget Brian Danielson. Forget. Cole, forget Suzuki, forget this whole pay-per-view and the brilliant matches on it. Four gears on a Saturday, thank Christ. I'm so happy about that. That was the best news of all to tell me. I've got to do stuff on a Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't work for me, brother. Doesn't work for me. (laughs) Well, anyway, um, this has sort of been a preview of Dynamite. Uh, You know, we had to sort of Talk, discuss all the fallout from all out so that we'll talk more uh, obviously about dynamite tomorrow on our review subscribe to what culture wrestling to hear that but let us know your thoughts on everything we've discussed and, and look forward to on twitter at what culture wwe watch they can follow all three of us you can follow michael hamlet at michael hamlet or michael sidgwick at m sidgwick follow me at adam wilborn follow us all at what culture wwe and as i said make sure you subscribe to what culture wrestling wherever you get your podcast from for daily wrestling podcasts our nxt review is available right now and tomorrow our dynamite review will drop into your feed as soon as it is released if you do subscribe but for now this has been the AEW dynamite preview sort of all out review as well my thanks to the dadly boys thank you for joining us and we will see you soon Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.